Let's uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, I thank you that we can turn to your word with confidence, that your scripture is without error inerrant, inspired, you carried by your spirit the authors to write what you desire. Father, take your word and apply it to us, challenge us, encourage us, transform us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Maggie was at the counter. She worked at a pizza parlor and she did the checkout and would give people their pizzas when they came in. And one evening, a woman came in like a tornado. This lady was irate. And she looked at Maggie and said, you are incompetent. I can't believe I got my pizza here. You should lose your job. This is probably the best job you'll ever have and you're not even worthy of it. I got all the way home. I came here, spent my time, spent my gas, went home, opened up the pizza, and it's the wrong one. What is wrong with you and what are you gonna do to compensate me? Well, Maggie was a bit shell-shocked and she began by saying, ma'am, there's not much I could do. And that just teed the woman off. And she went into a second rant. And finally, she took a breath. And Maggie said, ma'am, I am so sorry. I, I am so sorry. But there's really nothing I can do. That pizza box belongs to the pizza place across the street, not this one. <laughs> now, it's kind of a silly story, but it happens to be a true one. It talks about someone who flies off at the handle, loses control, charges in ways that are not accurate. That's exactly what we have in today's text. <clears throat> you remember the setting of Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are heading to the temple. It's the second of three appointed times where the Jews will pray each day. They're heading into the temple by that gate that is now closed, the golden gate or the gate called beautiful. And right there is a man. He's probably been there all the life. He's a little over 40 years old. He has not been able to walk from birth. People have put him there every morning and taken him away every night. And he's there to bag. And somehow they make eye contact. And the man asks for a handout. And you remember that Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nathers, rise up and walk. And he pulls him up and the man is restored. <coughs> it's an incredible moment. It's one of those moments where we would expect all those who believe in the one true living God to praise God, but instead the Sanhedrin, 70 of them, are angered about the event. Let me pick up in the text. I want to read from Acts 4, 1 to 10. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men 
came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John, the Western text actually has a footnote telling John is Jonathan and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Well, this is a lot more than an irate woman ranting at Maggie at the pizza station. This is 70 individuals. In fact, if my count is correct in verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6, we actually have 11 people groups that are all in some way attacking Peter and John. Now, some of them are part groups of the large group. Now, the first person that is listed is actually the captain of the temple. Now, if you've read scripture, you probably are unfamiliar with the captain of the temple. It's not one of those designations that occurs a lot in scripture. But this is a powerful individual. In Jerusalem, this is potentially the third most powerful individual. The most powerful would be the governor. The year right now is AD 30, and the governor is Pilate. He will remain governor until AD 36. And Pilate split his time between up north on the Mediterranean in Caesarea Maritima and down south in Jerusalem. He is hands down, given the authority of Rome, so he is the most powerful individual in Jerusalem. The second most powerful individual is listed in verse 6, and that would be the high priest, and we'll talk about him in a moment. The third individual would be uh, the whole Sanhedrin. They together are power brokers. Now, verse 1 talks about the Sanhedrin. Understand who the Sanhedrin are. They're kind of a combination of the House of Representatives, 435, the Senate, 100, the Supreme Court, 9, and those who run the FBI. They kind of have all of that authority. Now, their authority is designated under Rome, but they are very powerful individuals. They're deep moneyed. They're old money. They're individuals who together have been empowered by Rome to rule over all of Israel, particularly Jerusalem, but actually all of the tribe areas. These individuals are numbered 70. That gives them some religious authority because you remember back in Numbers 11, 6 and following, Moses appointed 70 elders to rule over Israel. That's how we get the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. And they are a very formidable group. Now, we tend to be a little bit more uh, familiar with Pharisees. Pharisees are lay leaders. They're religious elite. They're very spiritual individuals. They tend to be legalistic. 
They want to make sure you get everything right. They're very demanding and demeaning individuals. But generally, Pharisees are orthodox. The Sanhedrin, not so much. They tend to be more about power. They do not believe in the afterlife. They do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They do not believe in the demonic. They do not believe in angelic beings. Essentially, they believe that what you have now is all you will get. There were 70 of them, and they are opposed, standing against Peter and John. Among their number is the high priest, verse 6. And Luke tells us that the high priest is Annas. Now, some scholars who just tend to dismiss the credibility of Scripture says that Luke got this all wrong. Actually, Luke got it much better than some scholars today. You see, Annas has been high priest from 86 to 15 when Rome sacked him. Now we're in AD 30. Starting in, verse, or starting in year 18 all the way to 36, Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, has been high priest. But Luke calls Annas high priest, but he was sacked in AD 15. Why the discrepancy? Well, every Jew would know this. Your high priest for life. Rome does not have the authority in a spiritual realm to sack the high priest. So we actually have this period of time where we have Annas as high priest, according to Jews, and Caiaphas as high priest, according to Romans. So although you're only allowed one high priest, we actually have two. And so the text gets it exactly right. And then there's John, and I told you that the Western text thinks of John as Jonathan. There's a footnote in the text margin. Well, Jonathan would be right because Jonathan is Annas' son. And when his son-in-law Caiaphas dies in AD 36, guess who the next high priest is? John, Jonathan. So what we really have is the present high priest, according to Jews, the present high priest, according to Romans, and the future high priest, according to Jews and Romans together. And all three of them are bearing down on Peter, John, and this poor man who has been humbled from birth and now can walk. He's past the age of 40. And rather than people rejoicing that God has restored him, he's now finding himself under trial. Why? Why this excessive show of force? I think the answer is in verse four. Let me read it again. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Remember back in Acts chapter two, verse 41. In Acts 2, 41, Pentecost, 50th day after the resurrection, we have uh, Peter preaching, right? And 3,000 come to Christ. 3,000 people. Some men, some women, some children. The church in Jerusalem is alive. 3,000 people came to Christ. Now in Acts chapter 4, we're three months later. Only three months have gone by, 90 days. And the text tells us that 5,000 men believe in Christ. 
Now, probably some of us have heard of a gender-neutral Bible. The gender-neutral Bible seeks to be politically correct and to remove all genders from the Bible. Well, they've misunderstood the text dramatically. You see, in the Greek language, and the New Testament was written in Greek, there are two words for men. And we kind of have exactly the same thing in English. If I were to say, mankind, you would say that's gender neutral. Men, women, children, young, old, mankind is a general word. If I were to say male, that's a far more specific word, and it speaks to about 49.5% of the population. Well, Greek has exactly that. If you use the word anthropos, it means humanity. That's what Acts 2.41 has. 3,000 people came to Christ. Some were men, some were women, some were young, some were old. 3,000. But by the time we get to Acts 4.4, he doesn't use anthropos, he uses andros, which means male. That tells me that instead of 3,000 of both genders who now know Christ, we have 5,000 men who now know Christ. If we're utterly conservative and we assume that the men all have a wife and two children, probably more than that, then that would mean that in three months, the church grew from zero to 3,000 to 20,000. And this is cause for alarm. We, knew the two, we know that the two southern tribes, Judea, at this time have between one and a half and two million people. But Jerusalem itself has about 100 to maybe 150,000 people. That means in three months, 15 to 20% of all of Jerusalem has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The popularity of Christianity is alarming. Remember, the Sadducees are kind of in a symbiotic relationship with Rome. Rome is utterly in control. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees hate Rome. But the Pharisees refuse to work with Rome. The Sadducees, not so much. The Sadducees like authority. The Pharisees, they have you know, some influence. The Sadducees have law. And what Rome has done with the Sadducees is this. Collect the taxes and pay us and do not have any insurrections. Other than that, if we get our taxes and there is no problem, you can rule Jerusalem, you can rule Israel any way you want. Just stay out of our way. Now, of course, the Sadducees hate Rome. Rome is the occupier. They're the taxer. But Rome allows them to have authority. But now we have this problem with Christianity. With Christianity, we're talking about the resurrection from the dead, something the Sadducees don't believe. And worse, back in Luke 22, who are the individuals the talk Pilate into handing over Jesus to be murdered. It's the Sadducees. That's why Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now 20% of the population 
believes that this Jesus, who the Sadducees had crucified, has been risen from the dead, and more so, he is what? He is king. That sounds like insurrection. And this is a major problem for the Sadducees. And so they want to quiet, repel the apostles, silence them. Let me pick up in verses 11 to 22. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the exclusive nature of the gospel. The gospel is utterly inclusive in that Jesus died for all. The gospel is utterly inclusive in that the gospel is offered to all, but it's exclusive in that it says you, I, we cannot earn our own salvation and there's no other faith system by which we can be saved. It is only through faith in Christ alone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, agramatoi, common men, forgive me, idioti. Can you believe that's that word? It's kind of insulting if you ask me. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man, was, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So here we have the House of Representatives, the Senate, the Supreme Court, the leaders of the FBI, they're all steeled against these hillbillies. And these hillbillies call them agramatoi, which essentially could mean illiterate. That's not what it means here. It means not formally educated. What they're saying is this. You can't trust these guys. You can't trust the apostles. They didn't have rabbinic training. They didn't go to seminary. They're unlearned theologically. That's essentially the battle. It's not only a battle in the first century. It was a battle in the 16th century. And frankly, it was a battle in the 20th century. We fought the same battle three times. The first century is in the text. Don't listen to the apostles they didn't go to seminary. They're not seminary grads. There's no diploma on their wall. Clearly, they don't have it. We fought the battle in the 16th century. 
This has to do with the perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture. This was part of the Protestant Reformation. Part of the Protestant Reformation is whether we would translate the Bible into the language of the people and if the people could understand truth. And so we have the Westminster Catechism that tells us in the first section, the seventh section of it, that in areas of salvation, we can understand whether we've been formally trained or not formally trained. God has given us the clarity, the perspicuity of Scripture, and His Holy Spirit will guide us. And then the Westminster Catechism goes on to say, but there might be areas that might benefit from somebody with a little more training, but in terms of the central doctrines, everyone can understand it. So we fought the battle in the first century. We fought it in the 16th century. We fought it again in the 20th century. Until Vatican II, 1946 to 1964, there was no trust in the laity to ever read scripture on their own. That battle was fought again in the 20th century. And so what we have is Peter and John saying, no, no, we understand scripture. We understand what God's word says. And they make a remarkable statement in verses 19 and 20. Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's eyes to obey man rather than God. We cannot not speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, they believe that what Scripture says, they must say. What Scripture says, we must say. We must believe it and teach it. I think of a man named Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright was a Methodist circuit preacher in Illinois. That means that he might have had seven or eight or nine churches and he would go from church to church and he might only be in a church every couple months. And one particular day he was in one of the churches on the circuit and the deacons came up to him all excited. They were excited but they were nervous. They were excited because President Andrew Jackson was in the house. They were nervous because Pastor Peter Cartwright had a tendency to preach whatever the text was. And sometimes the text can be a little bit offensive. And so the deacon said, we don't know what you have in mind, but the president is in the house. Just say something sweet and nice. So Pastor Peter Cartwright got up in the pulpit and he said, welcome. I hear that the president is here today. Welcome President Jackson. And I've been encouraged to preach something sweet and nice, but God has told me to preach on heaven and hell. And so I want you to know, President Andrew Jackson, that if you do not accept Christ, you will go to hell. <laughs> In Jesus' name. Well, after the service, everybody wondered what the president would do. If you know about Andrew Jackson, you know he was a general prior to being a president. And he walked up to Peter Cartwright and said, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. In other words, you're a man who speaks truth. You're a man that can change the world. Well, that's Peter and John. They're going to speak biblical truth. And their statement has radicalized 
revolutionized our understanding of authority. They have said, judge for yourself. Judge for yourself. Am I still on? Okay. Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's eyes. Do we obey man or do we obey God? From that, we've gotten some instruction on civil disobedience. And it really comes from this text. And there have been three positions taken in the church. Only the third position is right. The first two are wrong. The first is to declare that God alone is our authority. That word alone really matters. And therefore we can stick our head in the sand and it doesn't matter what other authorities say because we're only under the authority of God. That is patently not true. The Bible has all sorts of authorities in our lives. There's authority in the home. There's authority in the church. There's authority in the government. All of these in many ways are listed in scripture. But this first position says, politics is a dirty business and therefore I don't need to know what's going on in the world. I don't need to vote. I don't need to run for election. I don't want to need to be on a school board. I don't need to impact society because I have one authority alone and that is God. That is patently untrue. Patently untrue. Matthew 5, 13 to 16 says that we are to be salt and light. We are to impact our world. We are to vote. We are to run for office. We are to write our legislators. We are to impact our society. That is biblical truth. We have some examples of people like that. We have monks. I think of Simon called the Stylite. He actually wanted nothing to do with society so much that he lived on top of a stone platform 70 feet in the air for 36 years, pulling up his food every day. What did he do? He actually became like a circus event. And people came out into the wilderness to see this man who was pious but foolish wasting his life away. I think of Mitora. This is in Greece. Those are monasteries and nunneries still in effect. Uh, 14 of us guys went there. And uh, this isn't part of my message. This is a freebie. You're the only one that's getting it because I don't care about the time anymore. But uh, we were at a nunnery and my brother-in-law, I've told this story once before, but I love telling it. The Reverend Dr. Greg Loomis said, hey, you want to see what's inside the nunnery's house? I said, can we get in there? He goes, oh, I know how. And so I followed him and these Asian families followed me, following him. And we walked in. You ever want to see an angry Mother Teresa? Be in her bedroom without permission. Not a good thing. I thought we had permission. We did not. Well, you can see that these are designed to separate from the world. How can you be salt and light if you separate from the world? Option one, patently unbiblical. 
Option number two is to believe that if the government says it, you must obey it. After all, there's the separation of church and state. You know how that phrase was first used in our country? The separation of church and state? It was first used to say that the state cannot interfere in the church. How is it used today? The church cannot interfere in the state. That's not how the phrase was coined. It was to say that the government cannot tell me what to preach on Sunday. The government has no right. As long as we're preaching from our sacred text, it has no right to tell us what to preach. Patently unbiblical, one and two. Finally, the biblical option is to understand that there are tiers of authority. Is the government an authority? It absolutely is. Romans 13, one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Civil disobedience is not for hotheads. Civil disobedience is not for individuals who say if the government says something that violates my preference, I'm gonna do what I want. Civil disobedience is for those who say there's a higher law, God's law, and I will obey the government as long as the government does not require me to do something that is morally or ethically in contrast to scripture. We serve higher law. A biblical view is to understand that we are salt and light, that we are to vote, we are to run for office. We are to write and influence our legislators. A biblical view understands that the government has no right to tell us how to worship God. A biblical view understands that there are levels of authority, one of which is the government. And we are to obey the government until or unless the government teaches us things that are antithetical. We continue to obey the things that are in accordance with scripture. We disobey those areas where the government is in contrast to scripture. So what are those areas? I'm gonna offer three. Abortion on demand. That is in contrast to the word of God. Overt contrast. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. God is in the womb, fashioning the child. God takes responsibility for that child. Jeremiah chapter one. God tells us that before Jeremiah was even conceived, God knew him. Luke chapter one. Here we have Elizabeth who's carrying John the Baptist and Mary who's carrying Jesus and they come in contact and the baby inside Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy, and that baby is called Berphos. In the book of Acts, that same word, Berphos, is used for a child outside the womb. It's actually used for an adolescent as well. In other words, God does not distinguish between a child in the womb, a child outside the womb, and an adolescent, and God takes responsibility for all of these children. And so in this area, 
We need to work and pray and fight to change the law of our land. I think of morality. This is not only where our government is, this is the air we breathe. The Bible is patently clear. Intimacy is between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. So scripture is opposed to adultery and fornication, homosexual activity, bestiality, voyeurism, pornography, and the like. You can get that in Genesis 19 in Romans 1. You can get it in 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5 and a host of other passages. So what about those who come to a different point of view? They're not my enemies. They're not. They are people made in the Imago Dei in the image of God who like me desperately need a savior, who like me desperately need to align myself in accordance with scripture. And so rather than hating individuals, we see them as individuals who need more Christ. And we are there for Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Yet another area where many governments throughout history have had problems is in a totalitarian devaluing of human life. You can go to Proverbs 31. Before you get to the Proverbs 31 woman, 8 and 9 talks about her, Micah 6, 8, or a host of other passages. This is the problem with Vladimir Putin. He has devalued the lives of those in the Ukraine and now threatened Poland and Finland and Sweden. Now he's got four countries lined up that he has warned against violating his will. And yet we see in scripture that we are to value human life, all of life. And so when I look at scripture and I look at Acts 4, 19 and 20, I've got to ask myself, Jeff, is it right to be more afraid of man than God? Who do I follow? Man or God? Political correctness or the word of God? What's popular or what God says is moral and ethical? Judge for yourself, Jeff, which is right, man or God? Peter and John rightly judge that God is the highest authority. It doesn't mean he bury, they bury their head in the sand, their salt and light. But it does mean that where God has spoken, you and I act. We believe and we honor him. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we do desire to honor you and where we have not, we confess that as falling short of your glory, as sin. Father, help us to honor authority. We are living in a very rebellious generation that really does not honor authority and you tell us otherwise. But Father, help us to also understand that you are, your word is, the highest authority. And while we do not ever look to rebel, we will follow you above all else. And where we have failed, we confess that for what it is, sin 
and rebellion. Help us to follow you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.